The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. It's a great encouragement to me to see such a good number out on uh, this particular evening, on this holiday weekend. Uh, It's good to see all of you here. And uh, this is our first celebration of the Lord's Supper for the new year. And uh, this is a very good time for us to dedicate the rest of the year to the remembrance of what Christ has done for us in his death. Now, the death of of Christ rather on the cross is the centerpiece of the Christian religion. On one side, there stands the problem of man's fall into sin, and then, of course, the subsequent uh, nature that's been passed on to us, the fallen sinful nature, man's estrangement from God. That stands on one side of the cross. And then on the other side of the cross, there stands the reconciliation that man has with God because of the death of Christ on that cross. And it's a reconciliation that brings us back together with God and enables us that we can enjoy the glories of heaven. Now, between those two does stand the cross that bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. In the middle is Christ, who's able to reconcile us to God, those that have been ruined by the fall. And so what Christ does is he restores us to the purpose for which God has created us. The cross was truly a momentous event. I'm glad that we did get to sing a couple of songs about the cross tonight. It's the greatest act of the love that the world has ever seen. I don't think any of us would dispute that. The cross is a wonderful thing. God became man. God became man and and gave his own life to reconcile us to him. And the Lord's Supper is just a wonderful time just to step back and to think about that, to remember the Lord's death. It was such a momentous event that God says that what we ought to do is to remember it until Christ comes again. Now, I think it's particularly interesting that the Lord's Supper is a Christian ordinance. And I, by that I mean that it's for born-again believers in Jesus Christ. We don't invite others to come to the Lord's table. And when we talk about Christians, we're speaking of people that are born again, not because you're in a Christian nation, a quote-unquote Christian nation, um, not because you hold on to some kind of Christian values or anything like that, but we're talking about people who have been regenerated, people who have been given faith, repentance and faith, to believe in Jesus Christ, and they've come to him, they've received him as Savior, and they are his children. And the supper is for those people, the, the, these are the ones that are invited to the Lord's table, and we don't invite any others. And there's a good reason why that we don't invite others to the Lord's table. And that's because for a lost person to come here and partake of this would be blasphemy because they have no relationship with Christ. They have no respect for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And even though people may deny that, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot come to his table if you reject him as your Lord and Savior, so we can't invite lost people to his table. But I'd like to introduce for you, to you another thought tonight in defense of the prohibition of who is allowed to come to the Lord's table, and that is that the, the death of Christ has no saving benefit for anyone 
but those that he does invite to this table. Now, in this passage in John chapter 10, we have the Lord's own commentary on his death, and he answers some important questions for us here. He answers questions about the intent of his death and who is to benefit from his death. And so he tells us that what he came to do was to seek and to save. And so the issue that we have before us tonight in this passage is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. What was the intent? What did he actually come to do? And then also, what is the extent of what he came to do? Is is his sacrifice for all people, or is it for those who do actually believe? As uh, Steve Lawson, uh, a great preacher who preached a sermon on uh, on this particular text, I paraphrased him, he said, discover the intent of the cross, and I will tell you the extent of the cross. So the question that we have here is, for whom did Christ die? Was his death particular or was it general? Did he intend to include all men without exception? Or was it distinct for those that he knew would believe? Was his death a definite atonement? Is it an atonement that satisfied God? Or is it one that's hypothetical and it only becomes effectual when it's mixed with something that's done by man? Well, those answers are actually found in this passage, and they're given by the one who has more authority to speak on the death of the cross. This, this person has all authority to speak to this subject. Now, I want to tell you first that as children of God, you're a very privileged people. You know that? You're a very privileged people. You come to this table as a very privileged person when you sit down to take of the Lord's Supper, and you probably don't need me to tell you that. You're a very privileged person. Uh, You know that the salvation that you have in Christ is far more than you could ever hope for. You might be the only one in your family that's saved. You could be the only one in uh, where you work that's saved. And surely every one of us has to ask ourselves the question, why me? Why is it that I believe? Why are there so many people that don't know who Jesus is and ones that do hear about him? Why are there so many people that don't believe and I am one who does believe in Jesus Christ? And I think probably the first thing that you would say about it is that you know very well it's not because of something that you did. It's not because of who you are. It's not because of the family that you came from. It's not because of the place that you live or anything like that. It has only to do with what God himself has done for you. You are undeserving of it. You know that God saved you out of the depths of your depravity. You're no better than anybody else. You're no smarter than anybody else. But God is the one who has given you understanding. And if you come to Christianity thinking this, that there is some other reason why you are saved or you are better than somebody else or you know more than somebody else or just who you are, then you haven't yet been humbled by the real thing that Christ has done on the cross for us. You haven't been humbled by the grace of God. So I want to make it very clear in the message tonight that there is no one who is saved but for the mercy and the grace of God. Nobody is saved but for that. It's undeserved because grace cannot be deserved. Grace cannot be because of God's fairness. And grace cannot be because of God's obligation. Grace is given for no other reason except a reason that is locked away in the ways and the mind of God himself, in the wisdom of God himself. There is no charge 
of injustice that can be laid against God because He provides a salvation for some and not for all. There is no demand upon God that says that He must provide salvation that is inclusive of the entire human race, or God is not just. If you want justice, justice says that all of us have to die and spend eternity in hell. The equity of justice for all of the human race is death in hell. It's not in a potential provision that everybody will get into heaven. Now, when a person dies and goes to hell, justice is served, and that's irrespective of anything that God has done in the redemption of man. And so there's no one who can lay a charge at the feet of God and, and say, well, that's not right because... God says, I have chosen my own, I have sacrificed for my own, I call my own, and I save my own. Those are issues that we find here in John chapter 10. Now, as we go through this tonight, you, you do have to pay close attention and be thinking as we go through to uh, figure out what, what, what all I'm talking about here, make sure that you get it right. I'll try to be as clear as I can. And I want you to notice in the text of John chapter 10 that Jesus, in his own words discovers to us the intent of his death and the extent of it. Now, if you look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1, now pay particular attention as we read through this to words like my. Jesus says my. And when he uses the word own, O-W-N, own, those are very prominent words in this text. Verse number 10, or chapter 10 rather, verse number 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also must I must bring. Now, pay particular attention to that phrase. Them also I must Pay attention to when Jesus says, I must do this, I must do this, I must bring them. They shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. 
I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, in this text, Jesus used a very familiar metaphor to to illustrate why that he came to die and who that he came to die for. Now, verse number 6 identifies this as a parable. And so what Jesus did was to use a story about a shepherd and his sheep in order to illustrate the relationship that he has to those that he came to save. Now, the answer as to why Christ died is found in the last part of verse number 10, where he says, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He came to give his life. And he must be speaking here of, of gaining a different kind of life than mere physical life, because Christ wouldn't have come to give people physical life. Uh, that's something that they already have. And so the thrust of his statement is this, I have come that they might be saved. This is the purpose why I'm here. I've come that they might be saved. I've come that they would be delivered from the darkness and death of sin. I have come in order to reconcile them to God so that they can have eternal life and they can go home to be with me in heaven. Now, prosperity preachers might look at that and they would sometimes say, well, he's talking about physical life here on earth, but he's talking about having abundant life on earth, that Jesus came to give people a really good life. And they're talking about material things. But then we look at the austere lifestyle of Jesus and we see the material's not on his mind at all. That here he's talking about spiritual life in him, that he came to give spiritual life, and that's capped off by the ultimate purpose of bringing us into our heavenly home. That's why he came. That's why he came, to save people, to get them into the heavenly home. And so we see here that he has a very definite intent about what he's doing. There's a definite purpose. Jesus states this also in Luke 19, verse number 10, where he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Remember this, this is the intent, to come to seek and to save that which is lost. So his intent is to save the lost. And if he doesn't save the lost, then his purpose is foiled. The intent fails if he doesn't save the lost. And so he came to save, and I don't think there's any of us here that would argue with that statement. Of course, Christ came to save. He is our Savior. That's his purpose for coming into the world. Now, the bigger question that's also answered in this text and comes really just barreling at us in in no uncertain terms is the question, did he accomplish what he came to do? Did he accomplish all that he came to do? Did he finish the work that the Father gave him to do? Was that work fully done? Is it partially done? Is it hugely successful, or is it mostly unsuccessful? What did Christ come to do, and did he accomplish that purpose? Well, since we're so close to Christmas, I want to remind you of what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph. He said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from From their sins. Now that statement is just rich in all of its implications. He will do what he came to do, and he will do it for a particular people. He shall save. And who shall he save? He shall save his people. Now there we have an objective that's set forth for Jesus before he ever came into the world, before he's born. The objective is here. This is why God sent him to save his people. And here we have in the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus Christ restating the same thing that was said by the angel. 
So the big question is, the disputed question is, did Jesus fall short of the goal? Did Jesus do what he came to do? Does he leave someone behind that he came to save? And this is not the only time that this question is addressed. Let's go back to John chapter 6 for just a minute, if you would. Uh, here in an earlier discussion, uh, Jesus has this subject on his mind again. And so in John chapter 6 and verse number 37, and uh, as you turn there, I hope all of you will turn there, get a pencil, a pen. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you need to do this. There are some certain words that I want you to circle and... When we get done, we're going to read those words, and those words will stand out, and they will tell you the answers to the questions that we're seeking here. So have a pencil and get ready as we read this. John six thirty-seven, and we're going to read down to verse number 40. He begins by saying, all. You want to underline all, or put a circle around all. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. You just want to underline shall come or put a circle around shall come. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all, and there you underline of all, put a circle around of all, which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. And you want to underline that, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone, underline everyone, put a circle around everyone, which seeth the Son and believeth on him, they may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up. And underline that phrase. I will raise him up at the last day. Now, I want you to look at that. Look at the underlined portions, and here's what you'll have, or the circle portions. All shall come... Of all, I should lose nothing. Everyone, I will raise him up. That's the extent of what Christ came to do. Now, I want you, what, what I want you to do next is try to take that and apply it to the entire world. Apply this to the entire world. All shall come. Of all, I should lose nothing. Everyone, I will raise him up. Apply that to the whole world. Does that work? Can that work? Well, we see clearly it doesn't work. So we must be looking at a particular people. They must be the ones that Christ described. That he said, these are ones that are given to me by the Father. And those are the ones, he says, all of them will come to me. Now the intent is shown in different parts of the verse. Uh, Christ's intent was to do the Father's will. Uh, it was to save all that are given to him and then to raise them all at the last day and to give them everlasting life. Now, if you want to go down to verse number 44 in this same chapter, you'll see that there are no others that are going to come. And that's because the Father is only going to draw the ones that are in verse number 37 to him. There aren't going to be any others that come besides them. Now, what Jesus does here is to set us up for the discussion of chapter 10 and tells us what he's going to do for those that have given, been given to him by the Father. Now, very clearly, if this means every person in the world has been given to Christ for salvation, then the text also says what? All will come. That's what it says. If all in the world have been given to Christ for salvation, all will come. He says this himself. So he says, all the Father gave will come. And verse number 44 says, why they come. Now, you could argue with that if you want to, but you're going to find yourself arguing against God. 
Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, Heaven and Hell, said, Oh, I love God's shells and wills. There is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say, Shell, what is it good for? I will, says man, and he never performs. I shall, says he, and he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shells. If he says shall, it shall be. When he says will, it will be. Now, he said here, any shall come. The devil says they shall not come, but they shall come. Their sins say you can't come. God says you shall come. You yourself say you won't come. God says you shall come. Yes, there are some here who are laughing at salvation, who can scoff at Christ and mock at the gospel, but I tell you, some of you shall come yet. What you say? Can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes. For herein lies the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it? But it makes you willing in the day of God's power. Not against your will, but it makes you willing. It shows you its value, and then you fall in love with it. Now we go back to John chapter 10. And we can superimpose what we've just read in John 6.37 on that text. And we see a startling statement here of particularity. We have particular redemption here. We have Christ's definite atonement at work. Now, in this chapter, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd of his sheep. He is over the sheep. He commands the sheep. He is recognized as the owner. As we read that, I, I pointed out to you, I said, look for the places where it says his own, his own, his own. He is the owner of the sheep. Now picture in your mind here what Jesus is trying to get across to us. That here you have a huge sheep pen. It's the community sheep pen for wherever, it's, wherever it is. Maybe we could say, well, well, uh, like David out in, in Bethlehem or something like that. Now you have a, a sheep pen that has all the community sheep that are out there. Everybody brings all of their sheep into the sheep pen at night. It's a common pen, and they put all of the sheep in there for the protection from predators. So we have all the sheep that are in the sheepfold. In verse number 2, Jesus says that the good shepherd comes, and he is the good shepherd, and he comes to fetch his sheep out of this pen. Now, the porter, the doorkeeper, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And in this sheep pen are, as I said, sheep from everywhere. All of them are gathered there. Many different sheep are in the pen. But you notice what happens when the shepherd begins to call his sheep? That it says the sheep hear his voice. Now, do you see this? He, he calls them by name. Notice that. He says he calls them by name. And so he doesn't stand out there and say, come on, sheep, all of you come. All of you come. I want all of you to follow me. He doesn't do that. It says he calls them by name. Now the sheep then hear his voice. It says the sheep hear his voice. Now you see this? He calls them by name. They hear his voice. He calls them and they come. Now this, this tells us that at some time he named them, didn't he? Sometime he named, he calls them all by name. He goes into the sheepfold. He calls them all by name. That means at some time he named them. Well, that fits in perfectly with the rest of the Word of God. They hear Him, they respond to Him because He named them and He calls them out. And this is just a striking statement that fits the Word of God perfectly when it says that the names of God's people have been written down before the foundation of the world. They are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
And so Jesus enters into the sheepfold already knowing the names of those that he's going to call out, everyone that he intends to call. And so he doesn't go into that sheepfold with the hope, somebody, I hope some of them come out with me. I hope there are some of the sheep that will come. No, he doesn't go with that intent. He goes in knowing their name, and he calls them out, and they come. That's his purpose, to get his sheep out of that pen. Now, he knows them by name because their names have been written down, and he goes in with an effectual call. He comes in with his voice, a voice that is recognized. It is a call of grace that he gives, that there are no others that do recognize. No one else hears this but his sheep. Or as Spurgeon would call it here, he would explain it as he's not asking for consent. He's securing their consent. He makes them willing in the day of his power. Now, in other words, what we're looking at here is something synonymous to, or the very same thing as, the Holy Spirit's call to salvation. That the Holy Spirit effectually calls, the gospel penetrates, and the gospel is recognized by those that hear it. And so the Holy Spirit's call is the same as the shepherd's voice that we have here in the Scripture. So who hears and believes? It's the ones that he calls by name. Not all of the sheep, because not all of them belong to the shepherd. He doesn't go in and call all of the names of the sheep that are there. Now, let me show you something that's even more precise. In verse number 8, it says that these sheep are not going to listen to anyone else. They are never going to follow anyone else. The ones that he calls don't know any other shepherd. Now, he can't be talking about an indiscriminate group. He can't be speaking of a sheepfold where all have the potential to come. Now, what the rest of the sheep do is they take off and they follow a different shepherd. They just buzz on out of the pen, uh, listening to the voice of many different shepherds, but they don't hear this one. They don't follow him because they never hear their names called. And so they're never going to follow, or these sheep are going to follow anyone else, and the sheep that Jesus calls follow no one else. They follow only him. Now, do you see why in John 6, 37, that he says, all of them will come? They all come. Because they don't recognize anyone else but him. They won't leave the sheepfold for anyone else but him. Now, it it can't be said that this is a nameless, indiscriminate group that's called. And yet, that's what most people would have you believe. Christ came to save nameless humanity. Nameless humanity. Some come, some don't. But he came for all of them, and they're all nameless. Is that what Jesus says here? No. He nails this down in verse number 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Well, what sheep is he talking about? What what sheep does he give his life for? Well, I have to ask, are are we so blind that we can't let the Scripture speak to to us in its clarity? Who does he call out? Are are we too entrapped by our narrow-mindedness not to let let the Word of God speak to us very clearly? Is it too much against our opinions to recognize that the ones that Christ died for are the same ones that he calls by name? Isn't that what fits the Scripture? I mean, how does the distinction of a special group that we read in verse number 3 that he calls out by name suddenly become all of the sheep in verse number 11? How does that work? Well, it can't work that way. None of this parable would make sense if the ones that Christ gave his life for are not the same that he calls out and knows by name, the ones that are in verse number 3. Now, I had a Bible college student that asked me about this once. 
his teachers had put it into his mind that Christ died for all of the sheep that are in that sheepfold and the ones that want to hear, all of them that want to hear and are responsive, decide to follow the shepherd. But is there any way, shape, or form that that makes any sense in this parable? Does that make any sense when you take John chapter 6 where it says, All will come? Now the all can only be those who have their names called or else you have universal salvation. None of the sheep of any kind would fail to follow Jesus if that's what it means. And so that flies in the face of what Jesus says here. Only the ones he knows and the ones that know him are called specifically, and he calls them by name. Now, I have no doubt that what Jesus is showing us here is a successful mission, that he came to do the Father's will. He came to complete the mission that he was given to do. And if he died for all, and all are not saved, then that mission is a miserable failure. The closeness of the agreement between the Father and the Son is found in verse number 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus repeats, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now you go back to verse number 14, and he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. I know my sheep. And then what does he say about them? They know me. Now it's very clear, I think, here that my sheep are the ones that he knows, they're the ones that he calls by name, and they come to him. And so we have to ask again, is that true of all the sheep? Well, these are verses that fit very closely together. Verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So once again, the ones he knows and the ones that know him are the ones that he died for. Now, we also have to be very careful to note here the language of substitution he died for them. That's important, isn't it? That means that he died in their place. He died for them. He died to save those who actually do believe. Oh, he says that the Father gave them to him, that the Father planned and purposed this. He planned for them to come. They're called out by the Father, or they're, um, they're drawn by the Father, rather. And so he planned that Jesus would save, by his sacrifice, the ones that he would draw to him. Now, you would have to ask the question, what benefit is it for God who knows what all of his creation will do? And what benefit is it for Christ to suffer for those that he knows are never going to be brought to salvation, to those that are never going to be called? Acts fifteen eighteen says that God knows all of his works from the beginning of the world. And surely if God knows anything, he knows this. He knows who is going to be in heaven. He knows who he intends to bring into heaven. You never have anything like an accidental convert. You don't have any accidental sheep that are in the fold. No, all of the works that God has are known. And so surely Christ is not going to die as a substitute for those who are never going to be saved and those that he will not call. And so you ask, well, why do you bring this up? Why do we even talk about this? Why, why is this important? Well, I would have to say it's important, first of all, because it's biblical. We want to know what the Bible teaches. It's biblical, so that's, that's why we want to find out about these things. But there are many people that would rather be sentimental than they want to be biblical. Because it sounds good to them to say, well, Christ died for all people of all ages and all the world of all time, 
And they think that somehow they've made God better if that's true. This makes a better God to them if that's true. Now, they can't imagine that, that God would do less than this because then they say, well, he's not a loving God. But if you look at that and you examine that, you find that that kind of love is actually deplorable. If that's what he did, we don't really want a part of that love. We're not going to accept that because nobody really wants that kind of love. Now, I illustrate it this way. Uh, you ask your wife if she cares if you love all women like you do her. See if she cares about that. And, and how many husbands would come home from work some night and talk about how grand that your wife is and when she tells you that she's just made love to all the men in the neighborhood? She loves him, all of them just like she loves you. And what about your children? You tell them, now we love you kids, but we love all the rest of the kids in the neighborhood too, so we spend all of our Christmas money on them instead of you. Well, they don't like that. That doesn't work. That kind of thing just doesn't work. No, we find here a very peculiar love, a very special love that God has for those that he intends to be in heaven with him. But on the other side, you have people say that, well, God loves people in hell too, and he loves them in the same way that he loves people that are in heaven. So he loves people that hate his son as much as he loves people that love his son that are in heaven. Now, you being reasonable people, you know that's an untenable position. That just does not work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it's an unbiblical position. Now, you think about this. Why should the death of Christ be particular? Well, it's particular because that honors the work of Christ. It's the only way that he could have been successful. You see, if the greater part of the world dies and goes to hell, and Jesus came to save them all, then how did he accomplish the Father's will? You see, the people are too far, too much concerned about what happens to man in the atonement than they are about what happens to God. And so what we would rather see is that God is shamed, or Christ is shamed for his failure to accomplish what he said that he would do, rather than to admit that God is hugely successful because he did everything that he intended to do. He saved exactly who he intended to save. And all of them are going to be in heaven. So you have to conclude that God never intended to save anybody his sheep to also conclude that what Christ did was actually accomplished. So you see, there is nothing but confusion if Christ came to save more than are actually saved. Now, this is what we know about God. God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. He's not glorified in a death of his own son that did not reach its full potential. The Father's purpose is the same as Jesus, and that purpose is to save. And we haven't yet even approached the problem that we have, that if Christ died for all men without exception, that there were multitudes already in hell when Christ came. And so did Christ suffer punishment and die as a substitute for people that there is no way that they could be in heaven. They're already in hell. Oh, atonement for, that's made for all would actually make the Father unjust. Do you understand how that's true? If Christ died for people that are already in hell, then the Father is unjust. Uh, that's the opposite of what most people teach, but did Christ actually satisfy the Father? Did, did he intend to satisfy God and to appease God's wrath for Sin or did he not? Do you believe that God was satisfied? Well, I think that he was. Uh, the scripture says that God was satisfied with him. He finished the work that he came to do. And then Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, 
God was satisfied with him and he exalted him to the former position that he had before he came to earth. It's because he reconciled us to God. That's why God is satisfied. That was his work. Romans 5, 8 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now you step back for just a minute and you just think, um, who, who could Paul possibly be talking about here? He says, those that are justified are saved from wrath. And then he talks about those who don't have their sins imputed to them. That's what it means to be reconciled. You don't have your sins imputed to you, and so God is satisfied. Now, that's what Christ's death was for. It's to reconcile those that are justified. They're reconciled. That's why God is satisfied. But here it appears that if Christ's death satisfied the Father, and all have been reconciled to God, and there's enough punishment that's put on Christ in order to reconcile all to God, but then most of them end up going to hell, how is God satisfied? And not only that, doesn't that make God unjust to punish sin in Christ and then punish it again in you? Would a just God do that? Would he punish his own son for sin and then send you to hell to have you punished for sin as well? Now, God's surely unrighteous if he tries to exact punishment twice. But the person who believes that that's what God does will say this. Well, the payment is there. The payment is there, and you have to accept it in order to make it good. Well, if that's true, then we have to ask, who satisfied God? Did Jesus satisfy God, or did you? I mean, if Jesus did all that he could do on the cross, and he tried to reconcile people, and they're not reconciled, then what's going to make the difference? You? And yet that's what this entails. If that's what you take as your position, that you are the one that satisfies God. You are the one that makes the atonement work. So that's what the scheme entails. Christ died, but that means nothing at all unless you, the one who is a sinner, the one who's depraved in mind and conscience and will, the one who is vile and wicked, you are the one that makes Christ's atonement work. And that makes you as much the Savior as it does Christ. Now, I have to tell you, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not what we see here. Christ came to do the Father's will not to respond to your will. Now, those that misunderstand the sheep in John chapter 10 also misunderstand what the sheep are capable of. They can't come by, themse by themselves. They can't come. The shepherd has to go into the sheepfold and bring them out. They can't come on their own. So Christ's death works because the Spirit effectually calls, and those that he calls will not fail to come. So when the shepherd calls them, they come out of the sheepfold. Jesus said they will, and he's the one, they're the ones that he came to die for. Now there's a lot more that I can say about this. If you follow the scriptures through on redemption, you always see redemption as something that is successfully accomplished. Redemption is not hypothetical. It's not spoken as something that may or may not be done now, when you see redemption in the Bible, this is something that is accomplished. 
So when the subject of redemption is addressed, it's never Christ saying, it's never God saying, it's never the apostles saying, you know, we really tried. We worked really hard at this. We did our best, but some just didn't make it. We tried to get all of them, and we hoped that all of them would come. But you know something about sheep? Sheep are stubborn. Sheep don't like to listen. Sheep don't like to come. And so some of them stayed in the pen. They just wouldn't come out of the pen. They won't come, so we left them there. Couldn't do anything about that. They just wouldn't listen. See if you can find that in the Bible. Where is that in the Scripture? This is what you will find. Jesus said, I did all the Father gave me to do. Now let's turn over to John 7. And let's see how Jesus enlightens us on his accomplishment. John 17, and in verse number 1. These words spoke Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Verse number 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now have they known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Now, you find any language there that says, some are left behind. Unless you think that he's only talking about the apostles here, all you need to do is go down to verse number 20. And there he says, this also applies to everyone who hears their word. Everyone who believes because of the witness of the apostles. So over and over again in Scripture, we see redemption is successful. All to be reconciled are reconciled. But then, of course, you have objections. Somebody, in fact, you have many somebody, who will say, well, what about John 3.16? There it says that Christ died for the world. And I never, I suppose they never decided to check to find out that the Apostle John and Jesus, uh, as, or John as he records the words of Jesus, that the word world is used ten different ways in the Gospel of John alone. And so whenever you see the word world, you always have to look behind it to see what meaning is being applied here. Which, which of the meanings of the word world does that actually mean? So you never approach any scripture trying to interpret it, especially in the book of John, without saying, what does he mean by world? So we have to ask that question, what does world mean in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Does he mean world? Every person without exception? No. He means all people in the world without discrimination. That's what he's telling us. Now, to a Jewish audience of one, to Nicodemus, Jesus said, God loves the world. In other words, Nicodemus, God doesn't love just only Jews. God loves Gentiles as well. He doesn't discriminate whether you are a Jew or you are a Gentile. Now, we see that explanation also found in the 10th or the 16th verse of the 10th chapter that we just read a moment ago, where Jesus said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold 
and one shepherd. Now the other fold that he's talking about is Gentiles. Now John is the best commentator on John, so we just let John clear up what he means by this. 1 John 2, 2 it says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now what does John mean by that, that he is our propitiation? Well, you note that word. What he's telling us is that he is the atonement. He is the one who brings man and God together. He's the one who satisfies God for sin. For who? What does he say? He says, for our sins. Now he means there, for the Jews. And then for who else? Who else does he satisfy God? Not only ours, not only just Jews, but also for the world. And here he means Gentiles. Now if what John meant to say is all people everywhere, he only needs to say this in one way. He just needs to say he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And even that by itself wouldn't clear everything completely up. But we certainly should be able to see this, that when he says for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the world, that there's very clearly a distinction between two different groups. Do you understand that? There's a distinction here between two groups. Ours and for the world has to mean Jews and also to Gentiles. We have an indiscriminate we have salvation that is indiscriminate. He's not saying that there's only one race of people that can be saved. Now in 1 John 2, 2, John explains how that Jesus, or he gives an explanation of John three sixteen, and he talks, uh, and also of, of how that uh, the Jews called out in John chapter 10, verse 3, those are those sheep that are in the sheepfold, and then he goes over and talks about Gentiles in verse number 16. Now the best comment that John makes about the explanation of John 3.16 and also of Paul's use of the word world in 1 Corinthians 5.19 about reconciling the world, the best explanation is given in Revelation 5, verse 9. There it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now there's our explanation. These are people in heaven. That's what we're reading in John 5, 9. God saves people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so he saves without discrimination. That explains world in John three sixteen. And so the Bible is telling us that there's hope for anybody to be saved. It doesn't matter where you come from. Anybody who believes can be saved. His sheep come from everywhere. They come from all across the world. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. And when he's ready, he calls them out. And they come to salvation. Now, that's just a very brief discussion in, in preparation for the Lord's table. So who is invited to the Lord's table? It's those that have been called by God. It's been those who have that privilege. Now, I, I'm thankful for this, that he knew my name that I'm one of the sheep that he called out. I'm not part of a nameless, faceless people that he had no idea who I was individually, that I mean nothing more to him than any other person. No, he knew me and he drew me. And he did that with his everlasting cords of love. Now, let me give you just one last point. I don't preach on this very often, so I hope that you'll bear with me just a little bit, bit uh, a little while longer this evening. I want you to look back again at John chapter 10, and let's look at verses 10 through 12. John 10, or 12 and 13, rather. John 10, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, 
whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. A hireling, he says. What is that? Well, it means a hired hand. Somebody who doesn't actually own the sheep. They don't belong to him. He's someone who doesn't really care. A a wolf comes, and faced with losing his own life, Uh, defending the sheep. He's not going to do it, so he just leaves the sheep. He won't defend them. And without going into details about this, Jesus is referencing the false shepherds of Israel that would rather bleed the sheep than they would to protect them. But the good shepherd says that he's never going to let the sheep be destroyed. Now, can you see how that figures into Jesus' arguments? If all the sheep in the pen belong to Christ, and he came to die for all of them and to bring all of them out, and some of them are not saved, and some of them perish, then how is Jesus better than the hireling? So what's the point here? That he will give his life to protect the sheep in order that they will be saved. Christ's death did that for them. It protected them from the destruction of hell. None of them are going to be lost. All the ones that Christ gave his life for cannot be lost. Christ is not a hireling. He sets that distinction between him and those who really don't know the sheep and care for them. He can't lose any that are his, the ones that are given to him by the Father. Now that's the message that we have in the parable of John 10. His intent was to save, and the extent of who he saved are those that he gave his life for, the ones that are in fact saved. That answers for us the question about the extent of his atonement. Now, thank God that he knows you by name. Thank the Lord for this. You didn't do anything for it. There's no goodness in you. God saw nothing in you. This is by the pleasure of his own will that he chooses, that he calls, that he justifies, he sanctifies, and finally he brings them into their heavenly home. That's what the cross did for us. It guaranteed that those that the Father calls will be in the home of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. A difficult subject in many ways to try to understand everything that Scripture is saying to us, but it seems that Jesus is very clear about it when we just sit down, read it carefully, look over the text, and try to determine what he said. This this clears up very easily for us and then matches all the rest of the Word of God. And here we see that Jesus Christ is always successful in what he intends to do. God's plan is carried out exactly the way that he wants it carried out. And so we come to the supper tonight recognizing that the death on the cross did in fact reconcile all those who believe to God the Father. We thank you for that. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because in no other way can we be made to be like him and to go home to heaven to be with him. Thank you for this, Lord. Bless us as we observe the supper tonight. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928.
Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.